Hey everyone, I've got another episode of the Road to Revenue series, and I brought back two of my favorite coaching clients, Alan Lazarus and Kevin Palmieri of the Next Level University, for some one-on-one hot seat coaching to show you how it's done as a mentee and a mentor. You're also going to get 30 minutes of Ask Me Anything. Tweet me at David Meltzer, your favorite takeaway from today's episode, and check the show notes to see how you can text me or email me at any time. This is Entrepreneurs the Playbook. Uh, This is something that I've wanted to do. Uh, These are two of my best coaching clients. These are two coaching clients of mine who come prepared. When people tell me, how the heck do you coach people every other week for just 20 minutes? What can you get done? Or 20 or 30 minutes, what can you get done? I coach both of these guys uh, and we get the most done of all my clients. And so I wanted to bring everybody on to, I'm going to answer the questions that they have. I'm going to answer the questions that they have. Uh, they are Alan La- Lazarus, Next Level University, and Kevin Palmieri. And I'm going to show you how to be a coach if you want to be a hot seat coach, and two, how to be coached, which is uh, something I actually learned a lot from you two because I still have mentors. I have mentors for the four necessities of my life. One, I want to make sure I have a mentor that teaches me to find out who feeds me so I get fed correctly because you need to be fed. That's one necessity of life. And then I have a coach to talk about uh, hydration. Uh, and hydration to me means more than just water. It means connectivity because water is a conduit to the highest form of energy. Breathing, I have a coach for breathing uh, because air is the third necessity. And then I have a sleep coach uh, because it's driving me crazy that people actually sleep eight to 12 hours a day and wake up more tired than they went to bed. That's like going to eat for an hour and coming back hungry. It just shouldn't happen. All right, boys, let's show everybody, Alan and Kevin, how a true one-on-one coaching session should happen, how to come prepared and what it looks like. And let's learn some lessons, tell some stories, make some money, help some people and have some fun. Here we go. What do you got for me? Right on. Well, it's a pleasure, Dave. Thank you for having us as always. Dave, as you know, early on when you first started coaching us, I was very short-term. Short-term thinking. I didn't have a long-term vision. Luckily, I had Alan in my corner for that. Now I'm becoming more long-term. I know the downsides of having short-term thinking. What are the potential downsides of having a pure long-term thinking pattern? Wow. It's way worse. (laughs) So see, when you incorporate a a short term, uh, and I call them within the daily practices, right? When I ask myself the what, the who, the how, the now, and the why, which if you don't have the five daily practices, I send them out for free, it's the key habit machine. And why is the what so important to what do I want today? I never ask myself what I want 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. But what I do is I take into consideration all of time when I decide what I want to do today, determinative upon the dependent variables that exist today, the independent variables in my life that exist today. So I look and say to myself, what do I want personally? So when I decide that I want to spend a minimum of an hour a day on my health personally as a priority, a non-negotiable before 
what I spend time with my family, which is also personally what I want, before I spend time uh, having activity I get paid for. But what do I do when I only focus in on the now, today? Is I take into consideration, I want to live to be over 111 years old. That's a long-term objective, but it is a dependent variable upon my daily practices, my habit machine. So I tell people all the time, you can't just have a short-term perspective, meaning you have to equate or evaluate the midterm and long-term values that you have, but you have to give it a daily assessment, a daily assessment because every day changes. It's the only certainty that we have is that tomorrow we don't know what it will be. We don't know what we don't know. We are ignorantly humble, not ignorantly arrogant, pretending that we know crypto is never going to go down or pretending like we know crypto will only go up. And I hear, trust me, people in every profession, NFTs, crypto, real estate, telling me certainties of the future when they should be focused in on what's your personal experiential giving and receiving values today? What's your timing and risk tolerance today taking into consideration mid and long term objectives that you have, then we can find the who, the how, the now and apply the why. Dave, are you reverse engineering your today from the 111 years old? So over, first of all, 111, Diane Cannon told me I was limiting myself, but I used to say I'm going to live to 111. I was over on January 11th, one of over 111. So it's not necessarily reverse engineering because that wouldn't be a good utilization of my time because in between the 53-year-old that I am today and the 111-year-old I will be, I don't know the variables that will be uh, uh, there. But for me, I know a long-term objective is me is to double the amount of money I make as fast as I can. So I apply that to the activities I have today, planned, unplanned, sleep, uh, the activities I create efficiencies effect, all towards those longer term goals, but all I'm really focused in on is the enjoyment of the consistent, persistent pursuit of the potential of living to 111 or over 111 in the pursuit of doubling the amount of money that I wanna make. So I'm not reverse engineering it because that would then once again, create resistance that I actually know what I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. Therefore, I will take into consideration where I think I wanna be know that pain, mistakes, failures, and setbacks will protect me from what I don't know and propel me to a better place. So give me, I'll give you my perspective. If, for example, I reverse engineer, I want to live to 111, and I do all these things to make it to 111 every day, right? I'm reverse engineering the foods I eat, all this stuff. Meanwhile, when I'm 110 and 360 days old, someone comes up with a blood transfusion, replacing our blood to create another 900 years of longevity. I've just wasted, what did I waste? But if what I did was considering all what I know today, this is what I'm going to do today, taking into consideration the mid and long-term goals, I now have some aspect of applying what I want in the future, knowing that I don't know what I don't know, knowing that pain will protect me from what I don't know. Pain, mistakes, failures, and setbacks will push me to a better place by the simple reason that I believe there's a greater source than me that cares about me more than my mom cares about me and more than I care about my kids. Therefore, when a mistake, failure, setback comes about, it's like when I was three years old and put my hand in a fire and my mom slapped my hand and yelled at me. I'm like, why? 
are you punishing me? She wasn't punishing me. She was protecting me. Because when it comes to putting your hand in the fire, my mom actually has some indication of knowledge, situational knowledge, not omniscient knowledge, that I would hurt myself if I put my hand in the, the fire. The same way you didn't get the job, you didn't get the money, you didn't get whatever it is you think you wanted in the long term. We are utilizing pain, mistakes, failures, and setbacks to protect us and propel us to a better place. And the only way to evaluate that, creating an evaluation is the energetic value of it, is to what? Every day, take inventory of it, of what you want, the what, the who, the how, and do it now, prioritizing by today, taking into consideration, again, midterm and long-term objectives. Interesting. I'm sure you Can have you, a real a real question, Alan. I know you have a bunch, so I I do. The next one I want to ask you, Dave. So, um, what was the mo- what's the most common misbelief or or what do you think is the most detrimental belief for a business owner to have? The <laughs> the most is, is that you don't need any help, right? As a business owner, that that you can do it all yourself. That that by far that was the biggest downfall of my life. You know. I can teach business owners three things. One, uh, to, igno- uh, to, to appreciate what they have. The people, places, things, appreciate what they have. Meaning if, if you have this much in your business today, the first thing you should do is appreciate it because when you appreciate something, uh, you add value to it. So you've already expanded your business. Then the second thing I would teach them is acknowledgement. How do I acquire the knowledge of what I have? by giving value or giving away what I have. That's the only way we can acquire the knowledge of what we have is by providing the value from it or giving it away, giving value, right? Then if you don't ask for help, if you don't ask for what you want, you're just going to dissipate and dissolve what you've had because you're not refilling the larger vessel that you created in your business. The people that expand, grow and accelerate compound the things that they want and have within the context of business keep on appreciating what they have at the time, acknowledging what they have at the time, but they're asking for more. I always tell people, imagine 25 years ago, boys, this is true. I was more famous than Jeff Bezos. I was richer than more than Jeff Bezos. I had more relationships in the Silicon Valley than Jeff Bezos. If I would have met Jeff Bezos 25 years ago in his garage and he told me he's selling books on the internet as I was selling legal research on the internet, Hey, Dave, I'm going to be a trillionaire. I'm be the richest man in the world. I'm an optimist. I don't like to you know, shit on other people's dreams, but I would have at least kind of laughed or scoffed at him, maybe even made fun of him behind his back. I wasn't the same person I am today. But think about that, right? Think, think about what he did. He appreciated beyond where I could, where he was. He acknowledged where he was selling the books, but he asked for more. He just had a greater superpower than I had at that age. And we're about the same age, right? He had a superpower of radical humility that he knew that he wasn't going to get there without asking for help and asking for what he wanted. And he looked at me probably like, oh, poor Dave. He's asking for crumbs. He thinks he's rich. Wow. My goodness. Dave, I'm sure you've come across and Alan and I have a lot. We've, we've come across a lot of people and experienced a lot of coaching and and conversations. And oftentimes there's two types of people. One people who don't have faith that they can accomplish what they want Two people who don't have the strategy in order to accomplish what they want. Do you think that faith without strategy 
I don't want to say is delusion because it's not, but like what, what about having faith without strategy? How do you fix that? You just have a probability. See, faith without strategy, discipline, and awareness is just a probability. See, the minute you innovate or imagine something, it's a possibility. When you have faith and are in spirit within the context of I must be what I can be, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, what's missing or I don't have. When you have that faith that there's something bigger than you that looks and loves upon you more than your own mom loves upon you, when you have all that, you have a probability that it's going to happen. But it's not going to be your perspective or your reality, not unless you have discipline, strategy, and awareness in order to see when you realize it doesn't matter, that's when it becomes matter. Mm-hmm. And it takes faith to realize it doesn't matter as long as I do my best, learn lessons, and have fun. It doesn't matter. Then what I want becomes matter, it materializes. You absolutely, to make a probability your perspective, your perspective being your reality, meaning that you cannot find outside of you what you can't find inside of you, meaning that you give meaning to everything you see. If you see it, that's not enough. If you believe it, it's not enough. You have to institute the law of Goya, G-O-Y-A, get off your ass and make it happen with discipline, strategy, and awareness. By clearing away the interference between you and what you want, which is already there because you have faith that there is an all-knowing, omniscient infinity that already exists. And it's your job to get and clear away what's stopping it from coming to you. So the law of gravity says, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I appreciate it. The law of Goya says, now I'm going to give it away with discipline, strategy, and awareness. And then the law of attraction fills that vessel back up and allows it to come to you rapidly and accurately. If you can shift that paradigm and understand that possibilities come from dreams, probability comes from inspiration, but the perspective in reality come from your ability to learn, to do your best by what? Strategizing, by making mistakes, expanding, growing, plateauing, growing, by having discipline to be consistent and persistent in the pursuit of that probability. And then finally, right, to have it become a reality. You have to have the law of attraction fill that vessel. And the only way the law of attraction works, people realize it's not just putting it on your vision board, See, if John Asaroff just put that Delmar home on his vision board and just put attention on it, focus in on it, but he didn't. He put his intention into it and he asked for it. Every day he asked for it, not just with his mind and his words, but he actions were asking for it because he had the desire that he must be what he can be and he wanted that house and he did everything it took to get that house. That's how the law of attraction works. It's not just a simple, I'm going to have a vision board and my Ferrari is going to come here because I'm dreaming about it in my house. It's a probability, but not, it's not going to be your perspective. Dave. So, um, one of the core values that I have is, is doing things methodically and with excellence. And I'm trying to figure out, I do things a little bit slower, um, than most people because I'm so focused on the mastery and the craft of it. And sometimes I don't optimize well because of that. How do I know whether or not that's conditioning from my past of not feeling good enough versus like an actual virtue that I want to embody and, and, and a part of me? Well, it falls in the context of one, being a student of your calendar, two, the energetic and genetic inheritance that you have, and then three, understanding prioritization. See, when we understand the importance of things, 
we will do things that take very little time and very little attention and intention before some of those things that create, you know, this difficult, more well thought out, planned uh, environment that you feel comfortable in genetically and energetically. See, my energetic and genetic disposition, which is why I do hot seat coaching, is I don't have that in me. Right. I, I have to and have practice being able to force myself to, you know, create systems that allow me to use my genetic and energetic personal characteristics, obsessions, addictions, et cetera, in my favor. So where most people can, you know, write a book uh, by sitting down for, you know, weeks and months and, do, you know, I have to do it in segments. Why? Because I know I'm a short term person. So I, I have to create segments. That's how I coach. That's how I teach. That's how I write books. So I go ahead and I create an outline and I, I have the bigger picture and, I, and the sub outlines. And then I do the lessons and the stories. Then I teach each section as a training and I record it so that I'm actually utilizing my superpowers within the context of the longer form uh, type of perspective that you have to give in order to write a book. So your personality would be perfect for writing a book or creating a plan. See, I have to break it down the same way that you could do the opposite, right? By trying to shorten things by prioritization and saying, this is important to me. And that when I evaluate it, put my energy and value into it, I'm realizing that I'm feeding something that's bleeding me. This falls within the biggest mistake I see people make. 80% of your time, Alan, is spent on things that bleed you instead of feed you. And so that if you have to feed the energetic and genetic inheritance of this obsessive compulsive behavior that it has to be perfect, you're actually bleeding yourself. And that in most times in a, uh, an evaluation of importance, you could say, hey, this, the importance of this being perfect is very little. And you're actually answering your genetic and energetic calling that you're a perfectionist because you feel like you're not enough or whatever energetic things that may help you uh, understand it, but you can counteract it with your activity by priori prioritizing importance and saying, if it's not important, if it's not important for it to be perfect, then I'm going to go ahead and reevaluate it so that I can work within the context of my perfection to do this at an 80% rate and just make it a satisfaction to the energetic and genetic inheritance by giving it a different criteria, a different perspective, giving it a different meaning that you want it to have to work within the context of who you are energetically and genetically. Wow. Kevin's definitely helped me balance that out because he's messy action way more than I am. Um, but I think I it, it's important for me to understand the layers of, because I think that's a virtue as well. The mastery drivenness is a virtue, but in the like you said, it's contextual. And if I'm painting the deck and it doesn't have to be perfect, then I spend an entire Sunday when I should be in my genius zone, which is coaching and consulting. That's what yeah. you're talking about is basically like that reprioritization. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, take, for example, in the digital marketing space, and this is a lesson that Gary Vaynerchuk and I both learned because we both did over 100 heavily produced vlogs, right? So full expensive thousands of dollars into each vlog. Meanwhile, we get a lot more impactful behavior within the context of the mediums that we distribute it by doing very quick TikTok videos, right? That get way more attention and impact way more people and motivate and inspire way more people 
simply at an airport by standing up and telling people be more interested than interesting instead of having this beautiful superimposed b-roll and music and three people with camera crew following around to europe walking into stadiums and arenas look there is a place to align it with what you do right there is a time that i do heavily produce things but i realize because i have some of the energetic and genetic inheritance that you do that this is perfection on TikTok is different than perfection in a vlog or a movie or a TV show. Then I can still satisfy my innate quantum need to be obsessive, compulsive, perfect, or whatever it is that you and I both share. Got it. Dave, so I can help serve Alan better in our community. What do I look out for when Alan's doing certain things and to say like, Alan, this is a messy action thing. We just need to wing it. Correct. So I've actually asked the people closest to me. One of the innate quantum uh, inheritances that I have genetically and energetically is I love to oversell, right? I, I, I don't love to lie to people or, or cheat them. Although sometimes when you oversell people, it comes off as lying and cheating, but, but it's innate in my being. So as I got older, I've asked my wife to embarrass me um, because she's around me most and she knows the closest to my truth of anyone. So I could be at a dinner and tell people, oh, you know, I sold my office building during COVID so I could buy a studio. My wife will say, he didn't buy a studio, he partnered on the studio, right? Why do you have to exaggerate to make yourself look better? And so you need to do the exact same thing. And, you know, excuse my language, but you gotta call your people you love the most on their bullshit and let them know because I love you, this is messy. Right. This, this this is not important to you, Alan. You're, you're letting your ego dictate, accelerating you in the wrong direction, creating void shortages and obstacles instead of reminding, remember and recollecting what's most important to you, who we can help and who can help you, how best to get it done with efficiency, effectiveness and statistical success with those lenses of productivity, accessibility and gratitude in mind. So this is not a priority to spend a lot of your resources on. What do you think? Does that sound fair? you will start programming and reprogramming and changing the quantum personality traits, characteristics, obsessions and addictions of Alan to help not only you, Alan, you, Kevin, but your entire community, especially his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, we were painting the deck and it took all day. Go ahead, Kev. I, I told Alan, I was like, I will, oh, ruin, no, no, I will no. ruin date night when you're staying at home to do a deck. I'm just going to say, <laughs> date, date night's way more important than any deck ever. That's so, true. So don't be a deck to your girlfriend. <laughs> Dave, one of the, speaking of our community, one of the things we've learned is the common wound is low self-worth. It's just, I had it, and it's still something we struggle with. Have, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Have you struggled with low self-worth? You're laughing, so some, something's happening. Have yeah, you struggled it. with it? I, and, I thank, you, thank you for the question. It's not one that none of these questions are prepared. Let everyone know. I didn't tell you what questions to ask. No, right? no, 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 no. And this is proof because, uh, and the reason I'm laughing is some people wanted to come on this training. We're blessed to have over 50,000 people now every week registered for this training, let alone the IG live and the Facebook. But I, I told people, you know, if you don't think you need coaching from me, that's great. Come on and watch how I coach. You might get a good idea to be a better coach. Well, there's a secret, and this goes to all the people I do coach, including you guys. If I don't know an answer, I always try to, to you know, be honest and say, I don't know that, but I'll go find it. But if I need to give an answer just for credibility, there's a go-to because everybody in the world suffers from this. 
And I'll say, you know what the problem is, Kevin? You don't feel worthy. And it, mm. it, it it's the go-to coaching trick because, you know, the biggest CEO of the world, I'd love to save that one for the day that, you know what? I charge those guys a lot of money, the, the, the Fortune 50, right? And if I don't have gold to articulate value, I have a few of these things that always will bring gold. I brought some of the biggest CEOs and chairmen's in the world, people that you see on CNBC, right? Billionaires. And I'll just say, you know what the problem is? You don't feel worthy. Huh. Dude, how'd you know? How'd you, I feel like a fraud. I'm an imposter. And over here, I'm like, there's my go-to. So in a long-winded, but very important answer, every single person suffers in some degree, if they have an ego, which everyone does, with the inadequacy, with what I call the separation. They they suffer from being separate, that they don't feel as one. They either feel superior or inferior. Both are forms of not feeling worthy. If you have to be superior or feel that way, you're not worthy. If you feel inferior, it's obvious you don't feel worthy. Mm. Dave, so in The Alchemist, he has to go out on the journey to then realize the treasure was always buried right beneath the tree he was originally at. And spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read that book yet. Um, I studied Wayne Dyer's career, and I know you're a huge fan of Wayne and, and you know, rest in peace, Wayne. Um, I noticed, I, I stud- and when I say studied, I mean I read many of his books, his speeches throughout the years. He became way, way less ego-driven as time went on, and I know that you, you saw that transformation in him as well. Um, and my question for you is, did he have to go out on that journey in order to get to that place where he was less ego driven. Some of his speeches when he was in his like late thirties and early forties were like, you can tell that, that he had a tenacity and an, and, a, and an unworthiness within him. And that slowly dissipated over time as he became an earned success. And so my question is, do you have to earn success to get through that layer of the ego to, to actually, you know, be feel worthy or can we do it in advance? You can, only feel or or as that ego dissipates and, and what it is is in the time or framework of time see the ego itself doesn't dissipate what happens is you only spend minutes and moments there instead of days weeks months and years and so you need to learn how to spend minutes and moments with the stop drop and roll the cancel clear connect any of these things i have document just to, once again because i want people to get that, David at dmelzer.com, cancel, clear, clear, connect, the stop, drop, and roll are how we spend minutes and moments in ego. And so the ego will never dissipate, but it's the amount of time we spend in ego when we have the need to be superior, inferior, separate, angry, frustrated, angry, resentful, you know, guilty, all of these different feelings when we start to recognize it. So it, like anything else, like practicing golf, you know, you go to the range, you you got to keep practicing identifying what triggers the ego for you. Is it the need to be offended? Is it certain relatives or friends? Is it certain snapshots of you? Right? Because that's one to be quite aware of. What snapshots of yourself trigger your ego? You know, I have several. And every What do you mean by that snapshots? So there's, there's certain things in my past. Uh, you know, or certain things that hurt my feelings. You know, if, if you know, somebody would say, uh, for example, I, you know, I'll be very transparent. 
if somebody says Dave Meltzer is a bullshitter, uh, you know, is an overseller, is a back-end seller, if someone says something questioning that, it really hurts me because I know it's true. In the snapshots in the past when I was young, it was very true. Now it's only true minutes and moments of the time, less and less frequently, but it still triggers my ego. But I only spend minutes and moments when someone says, you know, oh, you know, you're a fake, you're a fraud, you're a bullshitter. That, you know, someone said, for example, a comment, and, and I spent just moments in ego with it, but they, I, I said Oprah Winfrey was a thought leader. And they said, just the fact that you said Oprah Winfrey's a thought leader, you've lost all credibility with me, you're full of shit, you're a fake. <laughs> and my initial reaction was hurt feelings. And my ego got defensive and separate. I felt inferior. And then I said to myself, hey, stop, breathe, drop. What do you want? Appreciate that person. That's their perspective. And ask them if they'd like to discuss why they felt that way and teach me something. And forgive yourself for being a bullshitter. Just the same way when I looked at my father's jacket in the closet at a time when I hated him and hated my wife, realizing I hated neither of those people. I hated myself. Right? That I was the liar, the cheater, the manipulator, the overseller, the back-end seller. I was the one that wasn't appreciating. I took for granted what not only other people were dreaming of, but what I was dreaming of. And thank goodness for my wife to indicate to me because I wasn't well rehearsed or practiced in identifying the ego. I wasn't in a position in my life to identify, like you said, when I'm not worthy. And it took my wife to tell me, hey, buddy, take stock in who you are and who you were and what you want to become. This stuff will go away. And it has. Mm. Powerful. Dave, last Appreciate question. The vulnerability. Go ahead. Sure. Last question, um, then we'll take, I'll take questions from uh, our, our community. Go ahead. Absolutely. Most, a quick one, most recent blind spot that you have discovered that has helped you pivot? Um, it's really interesting because I'm so focused in, on this idea of looking at things that bleed me and looking at it in the context of what I need. And so for me, if I'm not focused on what I need, and utilizing things that feed me for what I need, which is nutrients, not just food, but all the nutrients of what I need, hydration and connectivity, breathing, right? Utilizing Cancel Clear Connect, Stop, Drop, and Roll, meditation, quantum healing, uh, you know, also tracing clear. All these are breathing to me, uh, you know, life. And then finally, you know, really leaning into the recovery and access that I get uh, through my unwinding routine at night. So my tomorrow starts today at 9 p.m., putting my mind, my body, and a soul in a position to plateau and grow, not to live the myth of Sisyphus, not to roll a boulder to the top of the hill just to have it roll down again. Uh, so, you know, really honing in on, does this person in what degree feed me? Can I find the light, the love, and the lessons in this person, place, situation, business? And is it worth the time comparatively to where I could spend other time with people that are already bleeding me. You know, I see so many companies spending all their resources on a difficult client trying to maintain or double the business of a small, high maintenance client when they have an easy, big client that they've had since inception. And if they put the same resources into that as they did the other, 
holy moly, the big client that they may be doing a billion dollars with compared to the $20 million client turns into a $2 billion client if they fire the $10 million or $20 million client. So that's the biggest epiphany of today. That's where my focus is, both in coaching and in learning. And once again, Alan Lazarus, Next Level of University with Kevin Palmieri, two of my greatest clients I've ever had. I want to thank you because in our sessions, every single time, there's at least one moment where I say, gosh, Dave, that's really good, good advice. Maybe you should take it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Dave. Thank All you, Dave. The love. Appreciate it. All the love. I love you guys. Love All you right, back. Thank you. thank you, Dave. All right. Talk soon. I'm going to hot seat coach the community uh, from our audience. We will go clubhouse online. Uh, Jake, who's the first one that's up here online? I'm going to take one online. So Keaton, after this question, you're up first on Clubhouse. Here we go. Uh, what questions should you ask a coach before you ultimately hire them to help you? Coaches, therapy, training, and mentors. So one, know what you want out of a mentor is someone that can share their experience with you. A coach is someone that will bring the best out of you. A teacher is somebody that can explain it to you so you hear it. It's not what they say, it's what you hear. Uh, so for me, when I'm looking to work with something, one, I have to determine mentorship, coach, or teacher, or trainer, and usually I'm looking for all three. So I wanna make sure three things. I wanna ask questions determined upon what their situational knowledge or experience are. Are they sitting in a situation I wanna be in? Two, what are their coaching abilities? Do they inspire me? Do they bring the best out of me? And do they motivate me? Can they get me up, get me back up and keep me accountable? And then finally, uh, which is probably the most interesting, regardless of how great of a mentor or coach they are, uh, are they a great teacher for me? Uh, do what they say resonate with me? Do I understand what they're saying? Am I able to allow them is what they say, what I hear in the alignment between those? So uh, go ahead and bring questions on all three of those aspects so that you can have and accelerate the situational knowledge experience of dummy tax. You can also bring the best out of yourself so you can enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of that potential. And most importantly, you need to pick someone that you understand that speaks to your frequency, vibration, et cetera. All right, let's go to Clubhouse. We got the Keaton come up and ask your question. Fired up Friday. I hope all is well. My question is, what kind of traits should your accountability partner possess? Well, one, uh, they better be a communicator. <laughs> because uh, what good is an accountability partner that's not there? Uh, so, so many times uh, we see this with sponsors and power sponsors, uh, people that have great intention of being an accountability partner. But when you need them, they're not there. They're not prioritizing you. So the number one thing of an accountability partner is that you are a priority to them. And then two, that they have alignment with the objectives of your what, your who, your how, and your now. If you have someone that makes you a priority and they are aligned with the what, the who, the how, and the now, you can easily have a great uh, sponsor, great accountability partner that will help you add a secondary layer to getting things done. Uh, in your life and having something there to help you prioritize. Does that sound fair? Amazing. Thank you. Awesome. All right. I'm going to take another question online. We got IG going. We got LinkedIn Live going. We got StreamYard going. 
Over 50,000 people registered here on the webinar going. And of course, Clubhouse. After this question, Paul Attern, you'll be up next. Let me take a question from online. And then Paul, get ready. You're on deck. All right, here we go. Uh, what is your biggest challenge as a business coach? The biggest challenge as a business coach uh, is to be able to articulate quantitative value to exceed uh, the value that you're giving. So to be able to articulate the quantitative value of my coaching in the business aspect to exceed what I asked for. That is why I do so much for free. And I hardest part is to vet and qualify, especially if people are emotionally attached to what I do and they just, you know, anything I say, but it has to be quantitative for it to last. So I'm getting better and better at telling somebody, first of all, my one-on-one -on -one business advisory stuff, I, I have a wait list, so I can't even take people, but it actually allows me to prioritize and evaluate the people on the wait list to make sure that the people that I engage with, that I'm capable of articulating a quantitative value to exceed what I'm asking for, or I set them down into one of the groups or free trainings or, or free books or podcasts or TV shows or whatever it may be so that I'm always providing that 120 value that I talk about, the 120 value of not only being able to articulate the quantitative value to exceed what I'm asking for, but to carry the energy of 120 value. Anybody want the 120 rule document, just email me, david at dmelzer.com. Any of these guys, david at dmelzer.com. I'll also add my book, ebook, audiobook. I'm one of the few people that will sign a book, send it to you, pay for the book and shipping. David at dmeltzer.com. All right, Paul, you are up. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, a quick thank one. You. Yeah, I just want to find out how how do you relate with the younger generation, um, especially speaking to the area of um, of um, the disruptive inventions they are bringing to the table in the now. You know, so how how do you relate? to the younger generation. I mean, we live in times where the um, young guns are, are beginning to, to um, disrupt, um, um, look, looking at bringing new ways of getting things done, which is um, beyond societal norms, disrupting societal norms. You know? So how do you get to relate with them? And what advice would you give those in our generation vis-a-vis um, -vis the young generation? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, number one, with any age group, uh, I want to know what they're listening for, right? I don't want to speak to them. I want to know what they're listening for. So I've created an open-ended question guide to learn what people are listening for. What do you do today about NFTs? What are you doing today about crypto? What are you doing today about education? What are you doing today about financial services? What are you doing? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? So I'm always looking to see what people are listening for before I do anything else. Too many people, especially when there's an age gap, whichever way the age gap goes, they think it's best to speak to people, not to see what they're listening for. Then the second thing is to realize, especially if you're speaking to someone younger, that they may not be ready to hear what you want uh, to explain, teach, inspire, motivate. But it's still important to plant seeds under those trees. Because as Dennis Waitley taught me years and years ago when I was a young sales rep, right? Uh, I was a little bit resistant to some of the ways uh, of you know, what they used to call consultative sales, solution selling. And he said, David, 
plant seeds under trees that you may never sit under. And so you can be speaking to what you know somebody will be listening for as they evolve within a situation, experience, job, whatever it may be. So you can speak to what people are listening for at the present or even in the future. And I think with understanding what people are listening for, we're seeking alignment to take collaborative and uh, you know coincidental or coinciding action, but we're preparing for a Justin. Remember, a great leader, a great leader, especially if we're older, as you suggest, more experienced, a great leader is an intelligent follower. So you have to use an open-ended question guide in order to determine what people are listening for instead of thinking what people are listening to. And if we do that, you will see we'll learn to appreciate the extreme situational knowledge that our younger generation, more technologically advanced generation has, but we also will be able to open their mind to the, and appreciate the aspect of human nature, experience, dummy tax that will assist us both if we collaborate and coordinate together. Does that sound fair? Perfect, sir. Perfect. Perfect. Thank Perfect. you, sir. And if anybody wants that open-ended question guide, once again, all these things I give for free, just email me, david at dmelzer.com. All right. Uh, I'm going to take another online question, then flip back and forth. Hey, Zeus, you are next. Um, <laughs> this is an uh, interesting one. How do you deal with haters and trolls? Um, well, first of all, I see them as protecting me. Uh, because a closed-minded person, someone that's full of hate, judgment, or condition, uh, usually surrounds themselves with the same closed-minded, closed-hearted, and closed-handed people. And so if they have negative things to say about me to their general group of people, more to it because they're protecting me because those people won't give me a shout. They won't give me a lookout. Uh, just remember, out of 100 people, no matter what you say, and this is one of my speaking, I, I coach a lot of speakers, I tell them all the time, don't fool yourself when you first start. And they say, what do you mean? I said, because 10% of the people, no matter what you say on a stage, will love you. They'll stay over time. They'll tell you that was the greatest speech they've ever heard and you've impacted their life far more than anyone else. And it's a gen, an energetic thing. Uh, and it's about 10%. Remember, 99% of all statistics are made up. I just made up one, but it's about 10%. And then you have the 10% that are going to hate you no matter what. Those are energetically misaligned people that just can't hear what you're saying and they will misinterpret and, and they won't like you. It's the other 80% that I want you to understand and look to see what they're listening for. Um, and if we can understand that, then what we can do if we have a hater or a troll is go ahead and acknowledge and illuminate that they hate you and that they're a troll and let them know, hey, I'm sorry you're so angry. I'm sorry you have so many misaligned ideas about what I'm saying. Give me a call so I can learn to appreciate where you're coming from. Another made-up statistic, 99% of the people never call you. Some will email you and say they're sorry, they weren't feeling good, and they're just projecting their insecurity or whatever else it is. Uh, do not give them any energy. They are protecting you. When you start giving a hater or a troll energy, it's exactly the point that I was making with Alan and Kevin. Then you start feeding those that bleed you. And it's a waste exponentially of energy, emotion, time, value, and money. Stop chasing it. Don't resist it. Go ahead, feed those that feed you. 
Go ahead and allow the whole the haters and the trolls to protect you from other haters and troll. Focus your time, emotion, value, and money on the people that feed you. And more and more of the 80% will become the 10% that love you. Uh, excellent question. All right. Here we go. Jesus Mendez, you're up. Hey, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my question is, I know you talk a lot about closed-minded um, individuals. Uh, my question is, is there a spectrum of how closed-minded you are? For example, is there people who are closed-minded right at the threshold of becoming an open mind? Or is it just a clear-cut, closed-minded pe- person and a, you know open-minded person? Great question, by the way. Uh, no, it's not clear-cut. So that's why you have an open-ended question guide to get a feel for if that person's just closed-minded about the vaccine, or they just closed-minded about politics, or they just closed-minded about God, or are they closed-minded about the type of car they're driving? Uh, that's why we ask questions to see to what degree they're closed-minded and what topics they're closed-minded about, or are they completely just co- closed-minded to everything, which is easy uh, to find out if you ask someone, for example, how are you? And they say, fuck off. Oops, unless I can swear like that. They say F off. Then you know they're extremely closed-minded and you want to run away. So look for the varying degrees, not only of how closed-minded someone is, but also in your experience to find the light, the love, and the lessons. And I do this with my employees, Azus. You know, if somebody's bleeding me, an employee is just not picking up on it or whatever, then I go ahead and do an evaluation of at what extent, you know, it's worth trying to find the light, the love, and the lessons in this employee, or should I just move on to one that feeds me, right? So in both respects, it's varying degrees. In both respects, open-ended questions are the key. And by practicing and utilizing the open-ended question template and guide that I give, you can practice every single day and start not only understanding how to identify someone with a closed mind, but also to figure out at what degree they're a sponsor or a power sponsor of the objectives of what you want them to help you with or that you want help from them for you with. And if you do that, I promise you exponentially, you'll be more productive, accessible, and gracious. You will be more efficient, effective, and statistically successful. Things will compound on themselves. Your audience and community will grow exponentially, giving you a greater statistical success at everything you do, living in radical humility, being able to fill that bigger void from appreciation to acknowledgement to asking for more. Thank you, Jesus. All right, we'll take another question online before I get to JB. That's right, Jeff Bennett, you're up next. How important is guaranteeing your work? Now, to guarantee the activity you get paid for is not always possible, Um, but I won't do it unless it is. I don't want to be in an activity I get paid for unless I can guarantee it. So for me, it's the utmost importance of being able to live by my 120 rule that I'm providing more value than I'm asking for. So everything I do, I only work month to month and it's completely guaranteed. Uh, And so I only work month to month with all of my clients and tell them, look, at the end of the month, if I did not quantify the value, articulate the quantification of the value, act upon the quantified value greater than what you're receiving, then that's it. I'll give you back or cancel uh, that month's money and and we'll move forward in a, a separate direction where we both can receive more value than what we're, we're asking for. Um, and so we want to guarantee everything. Now, 
that is not realistic. It's not possible in every you know aspect of what we do. But I have found whether it's in the apparel business, the food business, the technology business, uh, or the big CPG retailing business, uh, the companies like Nordstrom's and Costco and all the other different companies who give you that guarantee uh, are ones who succeed because they have the utmost faith and confidence that they're articulating the value and executing on the value to exceed what they're asking for. Very important at the very least to guarantee the activity that you get paid for. Awesome. All right. Next up, Jeff Bennett. Hey, Dave. Thanks for taking my question. As a relatively new startup owner, I'm, I find myself just 24-7 thinking about the business, whether it's evenings, out with the wife, with the kids. Any tips on how I can separate that thought of the business always and make sure I'm focusing on who I'm with at that time and be present during that time? Oh, yeah. So this is where the five daily practices come in. If you're thinking about when you're with your family, the activity you get paid for, or when you're doing activity you get paid for, thinking about the activity you don't get paid for, you are not working the five daily practices appropriately. So instead, take some time, Jeff. Think about in the morning what you want personally today, experientially today, giving today and receiving, who can help you and who you can help most with the values that you've articulated, the what, how you're going to get it done with the uh, activity you have planned, don't have planned, and your sleep, how you can be productive, provide the most value to those activities, as well as accessible to as many of the most important people that you can, and accessing what you need by asking and receiving, and finding the light, the love, and the lessons to allow you to enjoy that consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. If you know the what, the who, and the how, every time you're in an activity, you're going to be positively engaged, knowing that it's the most important thing that you're doing. You will not always be looking at the shorts, voyage, and obstacles. You will not always be looking at the grass is always greener. You will not always be looking at there is better than here. Because there is not better than here, especially if you know what's important to you. When you start learning to prioritize and taking action one by one on what's most important to you, you will never be focused in on what you don't have, what you don't want, or what's missing. You won't have FOMO anymore, the fear of missing out. You will have JOMO, the joy of missing out, because you have prioritized and feel confident in and have faith in that you are already evaluated the activities for the day. So when you're in activity you get paid for, you know is most important to you and prioritize. When you're at the kids' soccer game or Disneyland, you know you have prioritized it. And if you have to come up with daily non-negotiables, that has helped me as well to determine by time how much time minimum I'm going to spend on my health because that was one that was always missing for me. I would be in the activity I don't get paid for thinking, God, I didn't work out today. Or I'd be in the activity I do get paid for, oh, I didn't work out today. But what I realized was my non-negotiable was family first, activity I got paid for second. And if the family was first in the activity I got paid for second, I never prioritized my health. Meanwhile, once I shift the priorities that I had, knowing my what, my who, my how, and my now became a non-negotiable of health first, I now never had that feeling again. There is no FOMO. Have the JOMO. Learn the five daily practices and apply your why. Don't go searching for the why. And you won't be focused in on what's missing, what you don't have. You won't have the fear of missing out or FOPO, right? The fear of uh, other people, you know, of what other people have. You literally 
about what other people's opinions are. Sorry, Popo. Uh, you will only have the concrete faith that you've already prioritized your day and have non-negotiable values weighing in on what you're doing. And you'll always be gracious and enjoying what you're doing because you know that's the best and most effective way of pursuing your potential. This is a huge one. I can't tell you how many of my clients ask me about that, that they think that there is better than here. No, there is not better than here. Learn how to prioritize. Reach out, Jeff. Email me, david at dmelcher.com. Anyone else can do so. I'll be happy to send you the five daily practices. Watch how quickly those void shortages and obstacles, the FOMO and FOPO are dissipated or dissolved from your life. Okay? Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. You got it, JB. Thanks so much, Jeff Bennett. All right. Let's move on to the next question um, online and then on deck on Clubhouse. Nina Emeni. <laughs> Uh, Nina, I hope I got that right, but it's spelled E-many. Uh, all right, here we go. What is the best lesson that one of your coaches taught you? The best lesson uh, that one of my coaches taught me was to be kind to my future self by doing good deeds, by understanding that I spent so much time, emotion, and, and value in using logic uh, to overcome emotion. I would try to outwit, out-intellect myself and think about things to change the way I felt. And instead, in order to be kind to my future self, was to do good deeds, to do stuff that was good, aligned with my what, my who, my how, my now. That allowed me to apply my why. And so when I started realizing the power of doing good, when nobody was looking, the power of knowing and, and having faith that there's something bigger than me, something that's omniscient, all-knowing, infinity, limitlessness that cares about me more than I care about my children. Are you kidding me? Now I had confidence, clarity, and balance when things didn't go my way. I had that confidence to know that I'm being kind to my future self by doing what's right, by being kind. Even though every indicator in the real world, every indicator at the slower vibration is saying, you'll never get that back. That's crazy. Don't do it. Even though I ended up doing the right thing, sooner or later, I realized that that faith allowed everything to protect me. And to do the right thing takes faith. And so everyone out there, if you have a choice, be kind and right. Be kind and right. You can't just be right without being kind. So uh, that became my superpower, the best lesson I've ever learned and still learn every day. So many great lessons, though. And speaking of many... I have Nina Emeni. You're up. Give us your best lessons or questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I wanted to thank you for putting me onto uh, a course in miracles. Um, I'm just having difficulty in applying the theory to my situation. I wanted to ask you about forgiveness. How can I stay in a state of forgiveness rather than a place from my ego when I'm um, when I'm in a lawsuit with my brother to protect my mom's interest and quality of life. Um, is Can I get to the place of forgiveness by thinking about I'm doing this for the love of my mom? And, uh, yeah, how do I know that? Well, first of all, that uh, you need to forgive yourself for whatever you're feeling is inadequate, separate, inferior, superior to your brother. Um, I promise you that your brother uh, feels as if he has the same intention. 
Uh, and so what we need to do is forgive yourself and understand your brother has a closed mind and you need to forgive him. Um, and that the more you resist in this situation, the more you can still stay in a legal uh, battle to understand and distinguish at the lower vibration in, in the world. There's liability. Um, but energetically, uh, the liability situation that exists in the real made uh, man-made construct of time in the legal spheres of regulations, rules, statutes, and common law, that when we can shift our energy and our beliefs into forgiveness, that we are allowing the best to come through in the liability lessons. Uh, so and, is it possible to write the statement while I'm in a statement while I'm in a state of forgiveness? Absolutely. So okay. remember, there's two different uh, two different frequencies. There's the frequency of thought that vibrates much faster, and then there's the man-made construct of time where liability exists. See, accountability exists up in the speed of thought. What did I do to attract this to myself, and what am I supposed to learn from it? And then there's the liability at the man-made construct of time that says, uh, you know, I better enforce this in order to protect my mother, but I forgive my brother and I pray for his happiness. And hopefully this will help the higher frequency will transpose and transcend itself upon the pragmatic world. And I have faith that the outcome by doing the best that I can do by learning lessons and having fun with this. And when I say fun, meaning don't take it so seriously. Don't create resistance, void shortages and obstacles. Don't put judgments and conditions. Don't attack your brother, but simply forgive your brother. But the nature of lawsuit is attacking. That's what the, that's where the conversation doesn't have to be. Is. doesn't have to be. I'm a lawyer. So, uh, I, I understand, I, I understand your mindset. Um, when it took me years, by the way, I was a sports agent. So you can imagine the separation, the void shortages and obstacles and scarcity, uh, but when I started to practice forgiveness and faith in the context of law and having situations that resolve themselves uh, by being vulnerable, uh, by not having judgments and conditions on my side, but staying in the higher source of forgiveness and love and light by explaining through and to my lawyers uh, my intention uh, and giving it the attention and intention, you will see, you, you know, scarcity breeds scarcity. And if you allow yourself to be vulnerable, you'll start becoming invulnerable in this situation. You'll start seeing things change that logically, liability-wise, never would have happened. All it takes is one little touch of favor, one little change of mind, one little feeling that you don't even know why that changed within the context of your brother because you started to forgive him. You started to forgive yourself and his energy changed. We started changing the thoughts that he had. And all of a sudden he started not even to any conscious, uh, any conscious awareness. You know what? I really want my mom to be happy. This isn't worth it to me. Oh, I'm just going to give up or I'm going to do this instead or whatever it is. I've seen it happen again, and again, and again. It takes faith and it takes the course in miracles to understand at what level do you have that faith to forgive still by balancing and reconciling, which is the book I'm researching right now, right? It's called The Reconciliation. How do we reconcile persistence and patience? How do we reconcile forgiveness and protection? How do we reconcile all these different things, the speed of thought and the speed of light? This is a classic example of understanding the difference between accountability and liability and reconciling them into the realm of this world. So 
let's just start real simple. I'm going to give you something pragmatic and then please email me because I have some other advice as well. But everyone out there, when you're in a situation like this, that it doesn't seem to reconcile, how can I forgive someone when it's going to hurt my mom? This is the general problem of the question. Just start here. Every morning, wake up and forgive yourself. Take accountability for the situation. Ask yourself, what did I do to attract this to myself? And what am I supposed to learn from it? And then forgive your brother and pray for his happiness. And is a sign of being um, me having forgiven him is that I get less and less agitated about what uh, think when I think about what he's done. I feel less and less agitated about it. Is that a sign that I'm forgiving? Yes. Of course, well, right? Less right. offense, resentment, guilt, That's anger, frustration. All of those are, are ego-based emotions. There should be less and less. If you're spending minutes and moments instead of days, weeks, months, and years, you're on yes. the right track. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Days, weeks, months, and so years. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jake. Uh, we love you, and we forgive you, you and your brother. We love him, and we pray for both of your happinesses. Everyone as a collective community will pray for both of your happiness, especially your moms. Find the light, the love, and the lessons in all situations. Everybody out there, remember, be kind to your future self. Do good deeds. Do not create other interference between what you already are, happy, healthy, wealthy, and worthy. All right, next week's topic is, is thank you, perfect lay-in is patience versus persistence. Uh, it's 6 a.m. Pacific time next Thursday because of uh, uh, the holiday or whatever else I'm doing. I don't know why it's Thursday, but I'm sure it has something to do with next week. Uh, anyway, Office Hours episode four premieres tonight on Bloomberg TV. We got the hip hop version. We got Ja Rule, CJ McCollum, NBA star, Clinton Sparks, unbelievable author, the music industry hero, and Ray J uh, on Office Hours with David Meltzer tonight. Premieres again on Bloomberg. Email me for the open minded question guide, the finder's feed guide, my books, exercises, guides, ebook, audiobook. I'll sign a copy, send it to you. Just Go ahead, email me, david at dmelcher.com. All of the replays are on the playbook. Just download that. If you're not listening to the playbook, the podcast, you're missing out not only on all the episodes of training, but a ton of great, great content from the biggest billionaires, millionaires, entrepreneurs, celebrities, athletes, and entertainers. Thank you, everyone. It's always a pleasure to be here. Remember, most importantly, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Have a great weekend. Take care.